So the very complex assortment of scriptures that we have just heard this morning, and adding to that complexity is the fact that my printer did not work. <laughs> so, so I'm going to make the best of trying to, uh, to reference notes off of, my, um, off my phone, which is rather small. Um, but, uh, you know, I want that, that passage from James is one that, you know, if it didn't give you some sort of sense of, of anxiety about righteousness and holiness and faith um, and our obligation to be obedient, um, it's not doing its work. You know, um, I've come to, to realize in life that it, even if there was only one commandment, we break it. Um, you know, we know, in fact, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. Why don't we? Why don't we? You know, don't get me wrong. We may and we can and we do love God. Uh, our love can God for God can grow and at times it even reaches new peaks. But there are other times when we don't love God very much. We don't want to worship. We don't want to talk to God in prayer. We don't want to walk with Him or talk about Him. These are times like King David experienced uh, in Psalm 23. Times when we find ourselves in valleys of deep darkness. When groanings about life or complaining about other people seem to, think, to be the things that, that flow from the heart and across the lips. The truth is that while we may be able to keep this great commandment to some degree from time to time, or maybe even most of the time, it's absolutely impossible to always be obedient to this command. It makes me wonder, why does God command of us or demand of us obedience to laws that we're incapable of complying with things that we just cannot do it seems to consign us to condemnation for our lack of obedience it brings me into the the gospel this morning in mark in mark there are two themes that really run throughout the entire gospel the first one is the theme of the incarnate love of god in jesus christ that we should see and the other theme that runs throughout the entire gospel is that there is a disease that we suffer from for which we need a cure. The disease was made plain in last week's gospel lesson from Mark 7. Jesus was responding to criticism from the Pharisees, religious leaders at the heart of their religious community who are devoted to keeping the law and showing others what God requires. They're complaining that Jesus' disciples are not performing the ritual hand-washing that was customary among the Jews, but they're eating with defiled hands, ritually unclean. Quoting from Isaiah, Jesus said to them, The people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship my teaching as doctrine, the commandments of men. And later, Jesus teaches that it's not what goes into a person that defiles, but the things that come out of a person. Because out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, 
Not out of the heart of some people, not out of the heart of just men, but all people. The disease that we suffer from, for which we need a cure, is a heart disease. There's a great, great quote from a 16th century German reformer named Philip Melanchthon. I may have probably have shared it before, but it's what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Yep, that's right. You should write it down. You should memorize it because it should come to your mind all the time in everything that you do. It is the condition of the heart that we like to lower the bar of what God requires to a level that we can easily step over. It's what we call self-justification, and we're wired for it. It's what we do. It's the problem of the Pharisees. It's our problem. It's the problem that God doesn't say, give it your best. It's the problem that God doesn't say or try to encourage us to just try hard. God offers no reward for being directionally righteous. Sometimes loving. Occasionally faithful. As if obedience to the law was like some game of horseshoes. Like us, the Pharisees are self-justifying by nature. They're deaf. Deaf. They cannot hear. They're deaf to the necessity that they all possess, just like us. They've lost the sense of urgency. They've lost emotion, feeling, compassion. And they're blind to the salvation that's standing right in front of them in that moment. They're missing the healing that's standing before them because they're looking past the symptoms. Convinced that they're not sick. In chapter 7, in response to the hostility and rejection of the Pharisees, Jesus and the disciples take a little trip. They go out to sort of the extreme northwest of Jesus' entire geographic ministry to an area called uh, near Tyre and Sidon. There are towns that are on the coast of the Mediterranean. They have, they have these rock uh, outcroppings that provide great fortification. They're cosmopolitan towns. They're full of all kinds of people, especially pagans. And Jesus has gone out there, as we learn in verse 24 of chapter 7, really to get alone, to get away, uh, to escape the hostility of the, the crowd in Capernaum at the heart of the Jewish religious life, his hometown. There he's cast out, he casts out the demon of a daughter uh, who is a Syrophoenician woman. She's outside of the Jewish race. Uh, she's nobody who has any entitlement to anything. Uh, she's desperate. She brings to him her request only as a last hope, a last resort. As we enter into our passage this morning, uh, Jesus is now with the disciples arriving back into an area that's familiar with to us. On the eastern side of the shore of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and in the area of the Gadarenes. What you should see if you were to look at a map is that Jesus has gone way around. I mean, there, if you look at it, uh, I think some have speculated, it's about a 120-mile journey by foot everywhere that he went because he goes up to 
to Tyre, and then he goes up to Sidon. There's another 20 miles uh, that way, and then he comes back around across the Jordan, around the eastern side of the Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, down to this region uh, where he's been before. The place where you might remember that he cast uh, the demons out of a man who was living among the tombs. So we begin in, uh, in chapter 7. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay hands on him. Now in this area, Jesus is famous. He's been doing a lot of healings. It's not really surprising to see that immediately when he arrives, people start coming to him. In this particular episode, a group brought to him a man who was deaf, couldn't hear, and he had a speech problem, couldn't speak. And they begged him to lay hands on the man. There are a couple of things that I want to point out about uh, this particular thing. The first is that it seems like the emphasis is on the people bringing this man to Jesus. But I want us to keep in our minds, in the background, the fact that Jesus has gone 120 miles to get there. You know, he's, he, he kind of lives and breathes at the heart of the Jewish people. He escapes away across the Sea of Galilee for rest, but it's kind of gotten to where the crowds are always following. They're coming up, they're asking him to do healings. He's gone on this great journey. Why didn't he just go back to Capernaum, or why didn't he go someplace else? You know, Jesus doesn't really act in those ways. And Mark doesn't record the story of what Jesus does to just sort of record Jesus' random acts of kindness. <laughs> Jesus has a mission, and Jesus is out to, to accomplish this mission. And it's a mission in particular. And it's a mission that's tied directly into another thing that we're going to talk about in a bit, which is Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 to 7. What Jesus is doing uh, in, in Tyre and Sidon and then along the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Galilee would be something that would be considered offensive to most of the people who are normally around him. He's interacting with people who are pagans, they're unclean, they're people who are undeserving. The Syrophoenician woman, she has no claim to any kind of entitlement that Jesus would be persuaded to help her. Uh, and now we're dealing with somebody who has a disability, which in that time people would have contributed to the fact that either his parents sinned or he sinned, but there's something about it that's off and he should be an outsider. So he's among the outsiders, but he's an outsider among the outsiders. Mm -hmm. And so, so there's this shocking um, thing about Jesus coming and being in proximity to this particular person. You would have to go out of your way. You'd have to cut across convention. You'd have to absorb some resistance from people around in order to have this interaction. It's not something that just happens by uh, happenstance. The next thing I want you to, to consider is what is the motivation behind the people who brought him? You know, a lot of people seem to want to draw a comparison to this between this story and one that occurred earlier in Mark, where four men bring a man who's crippled and they lure him through the ceiling. And Jesus heals him on account of their faith. It's very clear that that's part of what's going on is the faith of the people who brought him. A lot of people want to attribute that to this particular situation as well. But if it was true, it would say it. And it doesn't. So I want you to sort of strip that away. Strip away your expectation of why they brought him. And consider the fact that it may, it may be for other reasons. Jesus is famous. 
He's doing a lot of miracles. They don't have television. Um, there's some entertainment value to having Jesus do miracles. They brought a guy who's sort of out there on the fringes. Nobody's even touched him in a while. They're going to bring him in and see if Jesus can do something. Um, it doesn't necessarily equate to the faith of the people that they brought him. And it's not going to equate to the faith of the people that Jesus performs the miracle in front of them. In verse 33, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looked up to heaven and sighed and said, Aphatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. So part one of the story, after he's been brought to Jesus, is the miracle itself. It's Jesus' interaction with the man who's deaf and cannot speak. To me, verse 33 suggests something about the intent of the people that brought him. That perhaps it was just for entertainment, to test Jesus and see if this was a sort of miracle that he could do. He'd done their kinds of miracles. Why not this? But the episode is a little bit reminiscent of the healing of Jairus' daughter, which we talked about a few weeks ago, where Jesus took Jairus into his house, away from the crowd, shut the door, performed a miracle privately. The privacy of this miracle is important. Setting aside for the moment the intent of in the heart of the crowd, how Jesus performed this miracle is very interesting. The people want Jesus to lay hands on him, suggesting that there's some kind of a formula for miracles. That it has to be done in a particular way. Perhaps that's the way it's done around by would-be miracle workers, that they come and they lay hands on him. It could be that they just brought him for a blessing or something like that. Um, we've seen in the past few uh, months, though, as we've been through going through the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus' miracles fall in no particular pattern. There's hardly two of them that are the, the least bit alike. Sometimes he says a word, sometimes he touches, sometimes he doesn't. In the case of the Syrophoenician woman we talked about a second ago, heals the daughter, casts out the demon from a distance, never in proximity to the person. What, way, what um, makes the miracle happen is not the person's faith, and it's not the, the function, it's not the activities that Jesus performs that, that are in effect. Miracles happen because Jesus has the power to do miracles, however he wants to do them, under whatever circumstances. But they are customized. They're customized to the person, their needs. And those needs go beyond just the physical healing. It's emotional, it's physical. It's social and it's spiritual. When Jesus touches the man, he does it in a deeply personal way and with a specific purpose. The man is deaf and he cannot speak. Jesus can't just explain to him, hey, here's what I'm going to do. He can't hear, he can't understand. So Jesus puts his fingers in his ears and spits uh, and touches his tongue. And I think that we can kind of see this as a, as a bit of sign language. 
a way of being able to communicate to him what he's about to do. He touches his ears, his mouth, shows that he understands what the issue is, and he spits, which was in that time a way of suggesting kind of a, uh, you know, the, the, the potion that's necessary to have something happen. It's not that Jesus relies on spit to make something <laughs> happen, but it indicates to the person that something's going to be transformed, that, the, that there's going to be an expectation of healing that has been set. The next thing that he does is a little bit more important. He sighs. Actually, I think, uh, first of all, he looks up to heaven. <laughs> he looks up to heaven, I mean to say that. The uh, looking up to heaven is a way of indicating that this change is going to take place. And where's the source of the power that's going to come from? for that to take place. It's going to be heaven. But then Jesus sighs. And I did want to talk about Jesus sighing. Because it's, it's, it's a word that we can just pass by very easily without paying much attention to it. But sighs, uh, in fact the word is, is sigh, but it can also mean groan. Um, it's an expression of emotion. We can really only speculate about what exactly Jesus is feeling or what he might be thinking was it an expression of frustration or sorrow or disappointment or exasperation? It reminded me a bit of John chapter 11 when Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. It's, it's the one place where you have sort of the speculation of the crowd as to why, 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 is, he, why is he weeping? Some say, some said, see how much he loved him. Others said, could not the blind man, could, could not the man, could not he have also kept this man from dying? From all of Scripture, we know that the answer is, of course, that Jesus can raise the dead because he's God Almighty. We also know in John chapter 11 that his tears were on account of his grief over the lack of faith now, I wouldn't suggest necessarily that, it, that he's sighing because of the lack of faith of this particular person. I think, in, in fact, that it probably has something to do with the people that brought him. And that's what I want to kind of focus on a bit um, here as we continue to go forward. You know, witnessing a miracle is not some kind of a magic bullet. You know, I think a lot of people sit back and they want to see God demonstrate something, to do a sign before they trust him, perform sort of, some sort of a miracle. But the fact of the matter is that no accumulation of miracles can bring about faith. Is Jesus sigh about the deafness of the crowd who fail to understand, who can see and they can hear, but they continue to remain blind? Jesus utters the marvelous word of Aphtha, be open. It actually is more than just opening his ears and releasing his tongue. It's the kind of uh, statement that, that speaks to the whole person. He's completely released. He's refreshed, made new, spiritually, physically. Jesus is giving him, he's speaking a word to him that is the impetus for his faith. That's the miracle. You know, 
physical healings are one thing, but salvation is something so much greater. And that's what Jesus is communicating. We hear, we respond, we come to faith because of the word that he speaks to us. It's why we pray before we study scripture. It's why we pray before we teach or preach. Because we need Jesus to speak to us. We need to be able to hear him. It's not something, something that we can force ourselves to do, will ourselves to do. It's not something that we can do on account of our own intellect or ability. It only happens if he speaks to us and we hear him. And he gives us that gift. So what, so this is kind of the end of the first part of this particular miracle. You've got one man who's healed privately. But what about the rest of them? What about the people who brought him? This is where I want to spend a bit of time. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I think that the title of this sermon is A Tragic Miracle. It's a tragic miracle because while it's a while it's a miracle for the deaf man who's able to hear and be saved, it's an absolute tragedy for the crowd. He hears, and his ears are open, his tongue is loose, he speaks plainly. On the other hand, the crowd, able to hear, able to see everything that Jesus has done, can't seem to piece it all together. There are three things that are evident in their response. Number one, Sort of like the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And our ability not to do it. Or our inability to do it. Jesus, the Lord God Almighty, has commanded them to not tell anyone. And they're disobedient. In fact, they're not just a little bit disobedient. The more he tells them, the more their disobedience grows. The second thing I think that we can notice is that they are astonished. In Mark's gospel, the crowd witnesses miracle after miracle, and Jesus' fame grows along with the crowd. They demand more and more. At the beginning of his public ministry, in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus came to Galilee preaching proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But throughout the gospel, there's one thing that is obvious in every situation when it comes to the crowd. They never repent. They never repent. They are amazed in chapter 1. They are bewildered in chapter 2. They reject him in chapter 3 and plot to kill him. They fear him in chapter 4. They marvel and laugh at him in chapter 5. And they're filled with unbelief in chapter 6. And here in chapter 7, their response is astonishment. 
What kind of response does Jesus want? Does he want bewilderment? Does he want astonishment? Does he want fear? He wants faith. I think the third thing that we can see is that they are deaf and they are blind. They hear everything, yet all they can come up with is a bland observation. You know, I saw some commentators like to try to tie this back to Genesis when God finished creation and said that it was good. I look at it this way. They said, he's done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. To me, it sounds like they're saying, wow. What do you know? He can do that too. What kind of response should we see? You know, if we see Jesus face to face, how should our disposition be? They should be falling on their knees and worshiping him. I think it's extraordinary that they're not. How can it be? It's not that they're entirely wrong, but they are miles and miles and miles away from being entirely right. Yeah. I want to reflect a little bit on, um, on the passage that we heard from Isaiah. Because Mark's gospel is something of a commentary on Isaiah. You may not recognize it at first, but it really is. One thing that I would point out is that if you, if you look at um, Isaiah chapter 6, there's a, a passage there. Let's see if I can even find it. Sorry, dealing with technical challenges. I'll go to it on paper, of all things. Good thing I have tabs. Isaiah chapter 6. So when Isaiah is called, you, you remember it, um, you know, God says, uh, who shall I send and, and uh, who will go for us? And uh, then Isaiah said, here am I, send me. You know, we've heard that and we thought, hey, if it was me, I'd go too. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um, we wouldn't. Um, let's see. So, um, so he says uh, to Isaiah, go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then Isaiah said to God, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste. Without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. The Lord and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. 
like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. This occurs just before the Assyrian uh, conquest in 722 BC. When the people of Israel are defeated and carried into captivity by the most tyrannical leader ever known to grace the face of the earth. But in Isaiah, it goes on to where we, we came to in chapter 35, where Isaiah turns the story from despair to hope. It's in Isaiah that we hear about the, the promised Messiah who's going re, to return and redeem God's people. So in, in chapter 35, verses 4 and 7, comes the promise. Save those who have an anxious heart. Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. And he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. The, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand becomes become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunts of the jackal, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. It's the promise of what's, what we're going to see when the Savior comes. What's especially interesting is that that first passage from chapter 6 is one that Jesus quotes at the very beginning of his ministry in chapter 4 when he talks about why he teaches in parables. Mm -hmm. That the people who have been given the secret to the kingdom of heaven will see but to the others, they won't. They'll be never seeing, they'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding, lest they should turn and be forgiven. God promises to never leave or forsake his people. Mark uses this miracle to point back to the promise of God. In chapter 35 of Isaiah, he uses it to break through to the people about what he says in chapter 6 of Isaiah. About their hard-heartedness, their deafness, their blindness. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the incarnate love of God who's come to those in need of rescue. Mark wants us to have reason for hope because the one that God promised in Isaiah has come with healing in his wings. He's come to heal. He's come to turn deserts to an oasis. From hearts of stone to flesh, to meet our needs according to his purpose. He did not come for those who have it all together or think they have it all together. He came for those who need him. We have a Savior only when we need a Savior. Let me conclude this way. 
perhaps it's a bit of a wellness check. How are your ears and eyes working? In the present circumstances of your life right now, what is flowing out of the abundance of your heart? We're living in a difficult time, in difficult circumstances. It seems to me that too often in our hearts and in my heart, what seems to flow out is despair, grumbling, complaining, fear, uncertainty. Do we hear? Do we see? What's the evidence that we do? I would hold out to you that the evidence of seeing, of being well, of being healed, is thanksgiving. It's glory. It's praise and honor. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. You know, the thing that's the problem with the crowd is that they're just like us. They don't want other people to see that they're not all together. They don't want other people to know that they have insecurities. They don't want other people to know that they have doubts. They want to do what's necessary to create the facade of religion that everything is fine. They want people to look on their works and come to the same conclusion that they've come to in their self-justifying mind. That they're fine. They don't need help. They don't need a healer. They don't need a healer. Friends, it's okay to have those kinds of feelings. It's okay to find yourself in situations where you're unhappy, when it seems like all you can do is grumble. Because the Spirit works in us at a level of grumbling that is too deep for words on our behalf. It's okay for us to see those attributes in ourselves and confess it. Because we have a God who will never, neither leave us nor forsake us. Whose desire it is to come and heal us. But healing is predicated on one thing. Knowing that you need it. If you need Jesus to heal you. It's going to require something very, very hard. We have to set aside our pride. We have to set aside the notion that God saves us on account of what we do. That by bootstrapping ourselves along through a difficult season, we can get there without it. I think that's a real problem for our Society, it's a real problem for our city, it's a real problem for us as individuals, and it's a problem for our church. We have got to confess our need for Jesus, and we've got to lean into Him, and we've got to ask Him to give us what we need because on our own, we cannot stand.
think we, we need to take him at his word. We've got this great passage from Isaiah chapter 35. He's coming to open our eyes and open our ears and bring healing to our land and bring healing to us. Mark has recorded it for us in a way that demonstrates that Jesus is the one who's doing that, has done it. We cannot heal ourselves. We need the great physician to do that for us. But if we walk around thinking that we're not sick, complaining about how everybody else around us is, Friends, I invite you to just take a moment. Think about your own life. Think about our life together, life in community. And think about our necessity, our need for Jesus. Because apart from that, there is no healing.